like eight months ago, right? And so I was going to finally be a good husband, so I go out in the garage, I grab all the tools uh, that I needed to get, I was going to build these raised uh, garden beds. But all the wood I needed was out in our back shed, in our backyard, and so I hadn't been in that thing since the start of winter. Um, and so I opened the door, you know, you never know what can move in over a winter, right? So I opened the door and I look around, everything looked fine. And so I took the three or four steps uh, to get to the back of the shed and I noticed a, just a huge amount of, we'll call it animal droppings, all right? There's just poop everywhere, okay? We'll just put it that way, right? And, and something has been in here, I thought, and I thought, man, this is a lot. Something's living in here, okay? And then I heard the sound of claws scratching on wood, only it wasn't a distant sound at all. Right, it, was, it was really close. And so I turned to the left where I heard the sound coming from. And six inches from my face is a full-grown raccoon. Now, I wasn't ready for that. Okay, I was thinking mouse. I was thinking cat, rat, you know, bunny. I wasn't ready for raccoon. I've never moved that fast in my life. I did kind of like a, a sprint and barrel roll over the mower and just got out of there, you know. And um, when, you're, when you're amped, you don't you know what to do. So I just called my wife and told her the story real quick. But then I started to do something that's really dangerous uh, to do for me when, I, when there's no one with me and there's no one to hold me accountable, and that is I started to think thoughts, right? And so I thought, man, how does a grown man get run out of a shed by a raccoon, right? And that's my shed, okay? That, that raccoon isn't paying the mortgage. That's my shed. That's not his shed, right? So I go back to the shed, and I find this little stepladder, and I find him up in the corner, the back left corner of the shed. And so I look around the shed. I'm like, what can I do here? And I was like, oh, there's a garden rake. Okay, so I grab a garden rake, I start poking this thing, okay? Now, some of you are already shaking your heads, you know what's going on, right? My phone is in my pocket, it rings, and so I answer it, and, and so here's the scene. I'm up on top of the ladder, and in one hand I'm poking this raccoon, in the other hand I'm talking on the phone, and it's Corinne, and she, she asked this question, so what are you doing right now? <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm up on this ladder, and I'm poking the raccoon with a rake, Right? And you're not going to believe this. She wasn't a fan of this plan. Okay, she didn't think this was a very good idea. And so she talked me down from the ladder and convinced me to do a little research. And so I pulled out my phone and I started Googling raccoons, right? And then I called a local animal control company. As it turns out, raccoons can get very, very aggressive. Now listen to this. Especially, I was told, when they feel trapped in a corner and threatened. So maybe it's not the greatest idea to corner it and then poke it with a rake, right? And the, well, long story short, the raccoon's gone. You know, the animal control company came and got it. I'm fine, but absolutely no thanks to me. Okay, because I completely underestimated how big a threat this thing was. I opened myself up to getting rabies or, you know, my face ripped off, you know, because I underestimated what I was dealing with. And I know what some of you thinking. Man, we're supposed to listen to this idiot today after that story, right? I promise you I know more about the Bible than raccoons, Okay. But I tell you that story for this. I tell you that story because I believe there are a lot of people all over the world today who are underestimating Easter. I'm not talking about the holiday. I don't, I don't care where you rate holidays, right? But my bet is there are a lot of people in this room who underestimate the ramifications of the resurrection. There are a lot of people here today underestimating both what this means and how big a threat it presents to you. So let's just level with each other this morning, okay? Because if we're not going to be honest back and forth here, then what are we doing? Let's just level. In a room this size, with this many people here, there's a large variety of reasons that people are here today. Some of you are here because you come here pretty much every week, right? Jesus is a big part of your life. This church is a big part of your life. Some of you are here because it's Easter, and somebody invited you to come on Easter, or 
It's just what you do on Easter. You go to church with a family member and then you go have a meal at grandma's or whatever. Some of you are here because you think it's good for your kids. Some of you are here because it's one of the two holidays that you go to church on. If that's you, I hope you had a good Christmas. Some of you are here because God has been working on you lately and it's new and it's scary and you're trying to figure it out. Some of you are here because you just can't imagine observing uh, Easter without celebrating the resurrection with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you are here for reasons that I didn't even mention. But as you level with me, I'm going to level with you. Whatever your reason for being here, I'm glad you're here. So the first thing that you can do, you can just stop feeling like you've got to put on an act or anything. Because it doesn't matter to us why you are here as much as it matters to us that you are here today. Because even if you're sitting in one of those chairs and you've already determined in your mind, man, I'm not going to be back here for a long time. We still have an amazing opportunity today. We still get the chance to point you to the real meaning of this day. We still have the chance to show you and tell you and reveal to you that what we celebrate on Easter is bigger than I've ever grasped and bigger than you've ever grasped. So tell you what, give us 20 minutes. What do you got to lose? You're going to sit in that chair anyways. Just give us 20 minutes and open yourself up to really considering the implications this has on your life. Deal? And to show you how big a deal Easter is, I'm, I'm gonna take, I want us to take a look at a, a story of an Old Testament prophet. And I'll admit, okay, especially for those of you who've been Christians a long time, this is a bizarre strategy for Easter. There's not a lot of Hosea sermons on Easter out there today, but I promise it will make sense. Before we look at the story of Hosea, though, I think I, I want to bring us all up to speed to understand what the role of the prophets in the Old Testament are, because we're going to read about one today. Now, the Old Testament in the Bible centers around the story of the nation of Israel, So the Old Testament covers their story up until the birth of Jesus. And for much of their history, God would raise up people from among the Israelites and choose them to serve as his prophets. And these prophets were basically God's spokesperson. They shared whatever God told them to share. And in this, they had two main roles. The first is that they were to tell people what God was going to do in the future. And the second main role is this, that they were to call people to turn from their sinful ways and turn back to God. And in this line of work, as they carried these messages and they used these two purposes, they would often use imagery. They'd use object lessons when sharing their messages from God. And this was by design. It was to make the message more relatable to everyone, the the educated and uneducated alike. By using these object lessons, they made it easier for them to remember the messages from God. And if you read the Old Testament, some of these object lessons are weird. We can be honest about that. They're strange, which was likely part of the point to make them more memorable. But you won't find, in my opinion, a more bizarre one than the one that God tells Hosea to do, the one we're going to look at today. So look with me at Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. Verse 2, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So historians tell us that Hosea prophesied for at least 70 years, some think even up to 90 years. And and you see all those long, weird names in verse 1, those are kings that he outlasted all of them. He prophesied during all their reigns, outlasted all of them. But here in Hosea 1, he's a younger man. God has just made him, just called him, just raised him up to be a prophet, just started giving him messages. And his first message, his first assignment is the most difficult and bizarre one he'll ever get. God says, Hosea, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get married. 
But I don't want you to find the prettiest woman in Israel. But I don't, I don't want you to find the nicest or the kindest woman in Israel. I don't want you to find the most spiritual woman in Israel. I, want you, I don't want you to go on eHarmony.com and find your compatibility partner, right? He said, I'm telling you to search Israel and find the most promiscuous woman you can find. Now, the Hebrew, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The Hebrew literally says this, go and take yourself a wife of whoredom. We're expecting to hear that word in church today, were you? Now, the reason, Jose, I want you to do this, God says, is because it will resemble the relationship that your people have with me. I'm God. I've given them more than could ever be counted. I've loved them. I've cared for them. I've called them out and set them as my own, and they have whored themselves out to other gods. Something tells me Jose is not going to be made into a children's movie anytime soon. This is a bizarre request from God. But what God is up to here is he's trying to give his people a picture of their sin because we often underestimate the seriousness of our own sin because we don't see its ramifications. We choose to ignore them. But every now and then in his love, God pulls back the curtain and we see how we've hurt people. We see the damage that we've done to ourselves, the bridges that we've burnt, the collateral damage of our actions. Nobody enjoys seeing a picture of their sin. But man, sometimes this is exactly what we need. Because it pushes us to the arms of the one who can forgive, the one who can heal, the one who can restore. So look what Hosea does in verse 3. So he married Gomer, daughter of Ziblam, and, he conceived, and she conceived and bore him a son. So Hosea goes out and marries a woman named Gomer. Now just think about that for a second. This probably wouldn't be the first line on Gomer's resume. Right? Because what does it say about her that the qualification list for Hosea to choose a wife was to find the most unfaithful, promiscuous woman he can find, and he picks her? Verse 3 says that she bore him a son. In fact, in chapter 1, she gives birth to three children. And though the Bible doesn't come out explicitly and say it, Israelite tradition holds that Hosea wasn't the father of any of these children. She bore them to him because he was her husband, but tradition holds that she never stopped her ways. She never acted like a married, monogamous woman. In either way, Gomer plays, this, plays her part in this divine play perfectly. Right? If she is to be the representation of the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel, she perfects the role. She's three kids. Again, most likely not Hosea's. And then she bails completely. She leaves him and the kids behind, and she continues on her life of promiscuity. And for two chapters, God keeps using Hosea as a prophet to telling him to teach the people of Israel that they have been unfaithful to him, and those messages would be deeply personal to Hosea because he went through this. But God's not done with the story. Turn a page over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord says to Hosea, Go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, so they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisins cakes. God says to Hosea, listen, I know what happened. I saw it all. I know that she, I know what she did on you. I know she cheated on you. I know she was unfaithful to you. I know she made it worse by abandoning you with the kids, and now she's taken up with another man who doesn't even love her. But you go get her back. And listen to the, the, the extreme nature of this call. Don't just do it because I said so. Don't do this under compulsion. You do this with love for her. You love her like I love my people. Can you put yourself in Hosea's shoes for just a moment? Think of how hard this call was. Think of the betrayal he must have felt. I've talked to some of my closest friends about this, right? 
And we've all experienced a similar thing. Maybe it's just us, okay? But I think this might happen to more guys than, than we might think. But me and every single one of my friends have asked, we've all had a dream at some point in our lives where our wives cheated on us in the dream. All right, now you psychology majors out there, you're already trying to dissect my brain for sure. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you out. I know where this comes from with me. Okay, I married up. Okay, I married way up and I'm super proud of it, all right? But don't think I don't know it, right? It's, in fact, when I proposed to her, it went like this, Corinne, will you marry me? Yes. Wow, really? Why? You know? So I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's that realization that caused this dream. But do you want to know how I doubled down on my crazy that day? The morning after the dream, I was furious at her. I couldn't help. I was just angry. I was acting short. I, I was really terse with her. And then, listen, she didn't do anything. It was a dream. Hosea's life wasn't a dream. It was real. Gomer abandoned him. She was unfaithful to her vow. She gave parts of herself that should have been kept only for him. She left him alone with all the kids' daily reminders of her unfaithfulness. And God says, you go get her and you love her. You show her the love that I show my people. Because that's the thing about God. As unfaithful as the Israelites had been, and man, if you read the Old Testament, they'd been super unfaithful. He just couldn't help himself. They were his children they were his people there was nothing they could do to stop his love for them Hosea God says she is your wife yes she's done nothing to deserve this love in fact all she's ever done is reject it but you go get her anyways verse 2 so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver about a homer and a lethic of barley now I'm guessing there's not many people in here today who deal on a daily basis with shekels and homers and lethics right but I read that verse to you because there's a couple things I want to point out to you. The first is this. He bought her. He bought her. I mean, think about that. She's his wife. He never divorced her. She was unfaithful to him. He never was unfaithful to her. Back in, back in that day, when, when a marriage would start, there was a dowry that you would pay in order to marry someone. And you would pay this dowry to the father of the bride. Nowadays, the father of the bride is expected to pay for the wedding. Right? As a dad of two girls, I hope we really find our way back to Israelite tradition before my girls want to get married. Right? Sir, I'd like to marry your daughter. Great. Do you have cash on you? You just want to write a check. Right? But you see, this amount that Hosea paid was not the amount required for a dowry for marriage because they were already married. It was the amount someone would pay a slave owner to free that person from prostitution. See, this detail tells us Hosea was not only unfaithful, she left her husband to go be a prostitute. So he goes and he pays the price necessary to buy her back, to rescue her from that life, to bring her back home from him, which seems so wrong, doesn't it? She's his wife. Why should he have to pay for her like all those other strange men paid for her? See, he's showing her the love that God shows his people, that even when we're unfaithful, he pursues us and is willing to buy us back. There's two little details in this book that I find interesting. The first is Hosea's name in Hebrew literally means deliverer and savior. The second is this. If you add up what Hosea paid here, if you add up the value of the barley and add it to the 15 shekels already paid, then Hosea paid 30 shekels, 30 coins to buy Gomer back. And I know what some of you are thinking. Does he understand what the word interesting means? I do, okay? I'm going to explain why those are interesting. Because we told you the role of the prophets was twofold. To tell people uh, what God was going to do in the future and to get them to turn from their sins. And if you read the whole book of Hosea, there is a meaning to Hosea's prophecies for the time that they were given. 
There's a meaning to what Hosea did to the time he was living in. But that said, the Bible is one big revelation from God. Though it's broken down into multiple books, it's all one story. It's the story of God creating the universe, making humans in his image, us rebelling against him, and him doing everything he can to redeem us and win us back. And understanding that context, the entire Old Testament, including Hosea, all point to Jesus Christ. And so all the Old Testament prophecies had a specific message for the specific time they were given, but they all also tell the greater story of redemption, which is the story of Jesus. And I cannot wait to tell you how Hosea points to Jesus today. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God made human beings in his image, that, that we are embedded with a dignity as his, his image bears. Human beings have a worth and a value and a sacredness that no other aspect of creation has. In Psalm 139, it says that, that while we were in our mother's womb, before anyone even knew we existed, that his hands were on us, he was forming us, he was shaping us, he was designing us completely unique. Acts 17 says that he placed you. He determined when and where you were going to be born. You, you weren't under the impression that you had anything to do with that, right? And Acts 17 says that the purpose of all this, right, that you being created, you being formed, you being made unique, you've given value, and then you being placed where you're placed was so that you could reach out to and find God, though he is not far from any of us. But we don't do this. We simply do not fulfill our purpose and the design of our existence. Romans 1 tells us that God has revealed himself to us in such a way that we have absolutely no excuse to not know him. But that what we've done instead is that we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That we've traded what we know deep down to be true and have gone our own way. And that because of this, left to ourselves, we won't worship God. We will worship created things instead of the creator. So we run around this world worshiping people, worshiping experience, worshiping pleasure, worshiping ourselves, worshiping our own opinions or intellect, our own nature, success, money, whatever it is. Which is why Romans 3 says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't say we're all criminals. It doesn't say we're all murderers. It doesn't say that we're terrible people by man's standards. It says that doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. Because we can set up whatever standard we want to set up, we all still fall short of God's standard, which is the only standard that matters. Because after all God has done for us, after all he's done for you to give to anyone or anything else the devotion, the affection, the love, the service and worship that is due God alone is actually worse than a husband or wife giving themselves to a stranger instead of their spouse. That how you would feel about your spouse doing that just starts scratching the surface of how God absorbs your unfaithfulness. See, it's common advice, right? When studying the narratives in the Bible to find yourself in the story, to ask the question, which character arc, which character story most resembles my own? This one's easy, folks. It's not a mystery in Hosea. Time and time and time and time again, we are Gomer. It's who we are. We are unfaithful. We are the deserters. We are the unworthy. We are the undeserving. We are the sinful and the ungrateful and the promiscuous ones. And God simply does not stop pursuing us. He has every single reason to. He'd be totally in his right to. It'd be totally fair and just if he did, but he is relentless in chasing us down. And in this pursuit of us, he sent himself. He came for us, wrapping himself in human flesh when he sent Jesus. And Jesus declared to the world, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. 
It's those who aren't home, Jesus said. Those who have wandered away. Those who have lost their way. Those who have lost their identity and their purpose and their direction. Those who are like Gomer and they are somewhere they are never designed to be. Came for those people, Jesus said. And the reality is in coming for those people, Jesus came for all of us. And this is why he came. He came to buy us back. Those of us who were rightfully his from the beginning, who we who despite that have rejected and rebelled and ran from him to other things. So he came to buy us back. And the night before Jesus died on the cross, he was betrayed by one of his own disciples. It was an act consistent with what humanity has always done to God. But that disciple, Judas, led, G- led Jesus' captors right to where he was. And he did it all for the price of 30 coins. The price you would pay to release a prostitute. And from there, Jesus went to the cross and was crucified. But listen, Jesus had this clarification for us in John 10 before all this happened. John chapter 10, Jesus is speaking, he says this, The reason that my Father loves me is that I laid down my life, only to take it up again. Verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This is the command I've received from my Father. Jesus told us all in advance, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be killed, but despite all that, I'm doing this. I'll be running the show the whole time. I have the authority to lay down my own life because no one can take it from me. After Jesus is arrested, he's brought before the Roman governor, Pilate, who is the most powerful person in that region. And Pilate knew, he, he knew as he listened to all the accusations, something's off here. This whole deal is off, that, that this Jesus had done nothing to which he deserved death. And so he took Jesus aside in private to try to come up with a way to release him. And Jesus isn't answering any of his questions. And Pilate looks at him in the book of John and says, man, don't you realize I'm in charge here? I can set you free and I can take your life. And Jesus is totally unimpressed. And he looks at Pilate and he says, the only authority you have is the authority that I gave you. Do what you got to do, but this is bigger than you. See, everything that happened on the cross, Jesus was in charge of. And on that cross, he bought us back. It was more than the whip. It was more than the nails. It was more than suffering. Jesus didn't just die. He took on my sins and yours. He took on our unfaithfulness. He paid our price. Just like Hosea did with Gomer, he pursued us and purchased us. And to do so, he had to absorb not only a physical death, but he had to absorb God's anger and his wrath and his just rage over every evil act that has ever occurred. God the Father unleashed all of that terrible wrath onto Jesus' son in order to keep from unleashing it on you. And listen, despite how powerful that is, all that is just words. It's all meaningless apart from what we celebrate today. Because three days after having both of his shoulders separated, after having a spear jammed into his side, three days after absorbing the nails and the whip and the thorns, three days after taking on God's anger and wrath for sin, three days after he died the most public death possible, they went to the tomb where Jesus was buried, only he wasn't there because he wasn't dead. Because God is greater than every force in this world, good or evil, because there's nothing God does not have power over, including the grave. This is huge for several reasons. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that if Jesus actually didn't raise from the dead, then the people who believe in him, right, should be more pitied than anybody else on earth. That we're the most pathetic people alive if Jesus is dead. 
Because we've believed a lie, and most importantly, we believe that our sins have been paid for by Jesus. And if Jesus is just a dead dude, like every other person who died and stayed dead, then Jesus died to pay the price for his sin and no one else's. Since he raised from the dead, this means that he was indeed sinless. This means that God accepted the payment. It means that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient in the eyes of God to pay for my sins and to pay for your sins and to pay for the sins of anyone who trusts in him. The resurrection tells us that the payment has been accepted. That The resurrection shows us that we have a hope that can never be taken away. Spent some time thinking this week about our Easter services last year, and then my mind went to everything that's happened in the life of this church in the last year. And then I started thinking about the things that have happened in the lives of our people in this church over the last year. And man, life has come hard at us. Our own have faced some of the most tragic and difficult circumstances that you can imagine. We suffered with them. And we grieved with them, and we cried with them, and we walked through it with them. But listen, there wasn't one single moment that I couldn't stand on this stage and not confidently say that we still have hope. That we have a hope that nothing can take away. And I could say that because we get that hope from the empty tomb. Jesus himself said in John 16, in this world you have troubles, take heart, I've overcome it. I've overcome it by absorbing your sin and taking your death and rising in Jesus defeated death and sin forever. Because of the empty tomb, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that death has been swallowed in victory. And then he starts mocking it. Think about the, the weight you feel from death at a funeral. And Paul openly mocks that death, where is your victory? Where's your sting? Where's your pain? It doesn't exist because God has given us the victory over it through Jesus Christ. Which means this, life can throw anything it wants at you. And Jesus has the ultimate answer to all of it. What Jesus did on the cross for you was never about saving you from suffering or heartache here. Make sure you understand that. It was all designed so that he could give you eternal life with him forever. An eternity, listen to that, an eternity free from death, free from loss, free from pain or grief or suffering. God knows that any amount of hurt, any amount of pain, any amount of suffering here as real and as intense as it is when we go through it cannot compare with an eternity without it. We understand this if we think about it rationally. If I gave you the choice this morning that you could experience the most intense physical and emotional pain of your life for the next two seconds, and then for the rest of your life, you would never experience pain again, none of you would ask me to fix the two seconds. You'd just sign up for that in a heartbeat. Friends, this is what the resurrection means. This is what the empty tomb means, that Jesus bought you an eternal life by defeating the grave. Since he lives, our price has been paid. Since he lives, we have a hope that can never be taken away. Since he lives and reigns, Jesus is everything. He's unavoidable. He cannot be ignored. His life and his death and his resurrection demand a response. Colossians 1 says that he's first in everything. He's bigger than you can fathom. He's the greatest answer to all your questions. Is God good? Look at Jesus on the cross. Yes, God is good. Is God actually loving? Well, he came and he bought us back. What's God going to do about evil and suffering? Jesus came and he defeated it. And it's going to be destroyed forever by the authority and might of Jesus Christ. Well, what's my identity? You're a child of God. 
been made in his image? What's my purpose? To reach out, to find, and to make much of Jesus Christ. What's my reason for living? To enter into relationship with the God who created you, and it's only possible through Jesus. Don't you see he's your answer? You know, I'd be sitting out there thinking, well, I don't know, man. I just got a lot of questions about God. Good. So do I. You always will. If, if God's actually God and I'm here, I'll never understand him. But you'll never, you're, listen, you're never going to get your questions about God answered by running away from him. Come to him. Get to know him. Your questions will begin to get answered. This is what Jesus made possible for you. Jesus Christ is our single greatest hope. He is our greatest answer, and he is our greatest need. Because we are Gomer, because we've been unfaithful, because we have sinned and fallen short of God's standard, we need him. We need Jesus. We need his death on the cross. We need his resurrection. It's why he said in John 14, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one can come to the Father but by me. This is the great difference between him and everything else. And all you got to do is read. Study history. Read every religion book out there. I'm guaranteeing you this. Every other thought about God is this idea that you've got to get to him. Right? That you've got to do enough. You've got to be good enough. You've got to say enough prayers. And you've got to give enough. And you've got to perform enough rituals. And on and on and on. And Jesus alone stood up and said, you can't do that. You've already fallen short. You'll never make it to God on your own. So here's the good news. I'm buying you back. I'm paying the price that you can't pay. I'm taking your place, which means that he's not just our single greatest hope and our greatest answer and our greatest need. He is also our greatest threat. If the tomb is empty, dismiss him and reject him and ignore him and belittle him at your own risk. Gary Richmond's a zookeeper. He wrote a book uh, detailing his life working with animals, and in it he shares a really cautionary tale. There's a young girl named Julie, a family friend of his, and she had a baby raccoon for a pet. I honestly didn't expect to talk about raccoons that much today. She named this raccoon Bandit, and this concerned Gary because, so he sat down Julie and explained to her what he understood about those animals. So at 24 months, he's going to go through a glandular change, and this will change his personality, it will change his outlook, it will change how aggressive he is. At 24 months, a raccoon weighs about 30 pounds, and a 30-pound raccoon is equal to a 100-pound dog and the amount of damage it can do in a fight. This would have been great information for me to have last week, right? He told her that often raccoons that are being kept as pets will turn on their owners and attack them after the glandular change. Well, Julie listened politely. and She said, thank you for your concern, but Bandit would never hurt me. See, I've had him since he's a baby. We're, we're too close. It'll be different for me. Three months later, he got a call that Julie's in the hospital undergoing corrective surgery on her face because she had facial lacerations everywhere from when Bandit attacked her out of the blue. You see, despite all that God has done for you, there remains one thing that he simply will not save you from. If after he creates you and places you and forms you, and pursues you, and dies for you, and defeats death for you, and reveals himself to you, and sends people to you, and you hear the whole story of all he did, and you decide, thanks, but I don't need it. I don't need all your forgiveness. I can do this on my own. I'm going to bank on my own goodness. Well, then there's nothing left to do. But listen, please. 
it won't be different for you. It won't be different for you. If you go through this life never claiming what Jesus did for you, if you never surrender to him, then there's nothing else he could have done. And you're not going to make some kind of deal. You're not going to be able to negotiate your way out of it. You will die and face an eternity separate from God in torment. And God's heart will break and he'll say to all who face that, what more could I have done? What more could I possibly have done? And don't let that be your story. Jesus Christ came for you. He died for you. He rose again for you. And what lays before all of us this morning is this. If you give your life to him and you ask him to forgive you and take over, then your sins are wiped clean forever. They're gone forever. And God's presence comes and lives in you and his peace will guard you. And when your life here ends, and guess what? It's going to. You will transfer from an imperfect, often strenuous and suffering and painful existence to an existence that knows nothing but joy and nothing but freedom and nothing but love and perfection forever. Our God came for us. Our God suffered and died in our place and praise his name. Our God rose from the dead and is alive today. What more could he have done? What more does he have to do? The band's going to come up and they're going to sing one more song. And this is your moment. This is your opportunity today. If you've never surrendered to the amazing things that Jesus did for you, You've never asked for his death to cover you on the cross. You've never believed in his resurrection for your hope forever. Then we're going to pray in a moment. I'm going to lead you through this simple, short prayer. It's not, it's not a matter of saying the right words. It's just a matter of you saying yes to God. And then if you do that with me, man, will you tell us? Before you leave this place, let us know. Let us celebrate with you that you have experienced your greatest need, your greatest hope, your greatest answer, all in the same person, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, there's not a single moment in the story of Hosea when we, in which we can say he was unloving. There's not a single moment when we, in which we can say that he was unfair to Gomer, that he didn't do it enough for her, but God, we try to do this with you. We try to label you as unloving when we experience suffering here when you bought us an eternity free from it. We try to question your ways when you're the one who created us and you're the one who formed us and you're the one who placed us. We sit off aloof and apathetic with our arms folded when you came and you pursued us and you suffered and died for us. But just like Gomer could never say to Hosea, you were just too unloving, we can never say to you, you, you didn't do enough. God, you've done more than enough. So I pray right now for those in this room who up to this moment today have never surrendered to Jesus Christ. They've never simply just said yes to you and your pursuit and your love, that where they're sitting right now, they just say, yes, God. Yes, forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. Take over my life. I believe in you. 
And God, as we sing, may those who have done that celebrate what you just did in their lives. As we sing, may those who had that happen to them in their past celebrate the true resurrected Jesus and what you've given to us. And as we sing, may those on the fence be convicted by your spirit. May you draw them to yourself. May you remove the flesh, the heart of stone, and give them a heart of flesh. Remove the scales from their eyes and help them to see the true glory of Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Amen.